Crosswalk Church Podcast in Phoenix, Arizona. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 to 40. Showdown with idolatry. I've broken it up into three sections because it's a rather lengthy section of of God's Word. And I think this is such a relevant topic for us in today's world. And it's been relevant for a very long time. Relevant going all the way back, obviously, into Old Testament times. Certainly relevant to Jesus. Because when Jesus was asked the simple question, you know, what, what are God's laws? What do I need to be saved? His, the first answer that spilled out of Jesus' mouth was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And theologians throughout the years have taken note that Jesus put a priority on this first commandment. In fact, Jesus himself, after giving the first two great commandments, he added to it one other, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. So everything that God wishes us to do hang on these two commandments, and in particular, on this first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Augustine, an early theologian who helped keep the church on track, said this, Sins are committed when we cry out for the little goods, the the little things in life. And in crying out for the little things in life, we desert the highest and the best goods, which are you, Lord God, and your truth and your law. Already in the three, four hundreds A.D., Augustine, this church leader, could see that there was a huge need for people to get back to simple love of God and that first commandment. And he could see people filtering to things that were little and unimportant and shouldn't have the priority that they have in their lives. And so he said, let's get back to the best goods, the things that we should really be seeking, which are God and his truth and his word. Martin Luther in the 1500s in the Great Reformation took a look around at the Christ followers in his day and at the churches in his day. And he said, all those who do not at all times trust God and do not in all their works and sufferings, life and death, trust in his favor, in his grace, in his goodwill toward them, but rather seek God's favor in other things or even worse, in themselves. People like that, he said, do not keep the first commandment. And they practice real idolatry, even if they were to do the works of all the other commandments. If you did all the others, two through nine, two through ten, but you did not follow this first commandment, and then Luther, he loves exaggeration. He said, if you do all the other nine and, and heap on top of that, Obedience to, to every other law in the word, uh, uh, on top of that, prayers, obedience, patience, and the purity of all the saints. But you miss just on this one first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He says, it's all for nothing. And he reminded the people of Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I don't know about you, but when I hear Jesus speak, when I hear Augustine speak, when I hear Luther speak, 
It's hard not to think about the things going on in my own heart. The, the little goods that I often find myself seeking instead of the big good of God and his truth and his will and especially his love and mercy and grace. Today we're going to see a story of a gracious God who keeps coming after his people despite the fact that they are running hard toward other gods. And despite the fact that God calls himself a jealous God, he doesn't turn his back, but he keeps coming after his people. When I think about Luther's quote, about how people tend to seek God's favor and understand God's favor by all the little things that are going on in their life rather than looking at the big thing, that is Jesus Christ crucified for them. Jesus' resurrection that proves that we have eternal life and proves that we have the power in everyday life right now to live a life that's changed. We have the powerful Holy Spirit living in us gives us the ability to make God-pleasing choices. Those are, those are amazing blessings. And Luther says our mind tends toward all these other little things that are physical and tangible. And when I, when I hear Luther speak this way, I don't think about 1500 AD. I think about 2012 AD. And how many of us are doing that? I think about myself and how I sometimes forget these major blessings of God's mercy and grace. Luther said it well, and many others have said it since him. He said, we have this amazing tendency toward becoming God makers in our hearts. A lot of times we'll look at the Old Testament, the the Old Testament people of God and, and see these outlandish cycles of them coming back to God and then deserting God, usually because they've made some other God and they've begun to follow that other God. And we think, how could they be so foolish? How could they be so dumb as to keep going after these other gods? And you know, in the times of the Old Testament, in Elijah's time, 800 BC, they lived in a polytheistic world, didn't they? And by polytheism, we mean that there were many, many gods. Every nation, every tribe that was around the Israelites tended to have their own community gods and even household gods that they felt protected them, that they felt would give them and grant them the blessings that they were seeking in life. And most of all, that they felt that if they worshiped them appropriately and did the right rituals, would bless them and make them happy in their lives. And there were so many that it was, it, was, it was the oddest of commands for God's Old Testament people to say, you shall have only one God. The people around them would, would constantly ask, who does that? There, there are too many gods to choose from. Who would say we should limit ourselves to just one divine being that we worship? It seemed crazy to most of the people around them to say there's only one true God. And so because of this polytheism, there was also something called syncretism. I don't know if you've ever heard some of these words, but they're, they're, they're very important words for us today. Syncretism basically means that you try to walk with one foot in this world and one foot in that world. 
that you mingle and mix your beliefs and your faith and your worship. And whatever works for you today might not work for you tomorrow, so you might have to leave this behind today and go to a different God tomorrow for a different need. And to Old Testament people, the people all living around Elijah, this was, this was not weird or odd. Remember even last week when Elijah came to this widow in Zarephath outside of the people of Israel in Phoenicia, and what did she say about Elijah and the Lord Jehovah? She called the Lord your God, Elijah, not mine. He's your God. Meaning that I have my gods and you have your God, and I'm not convinced yet that your God is okay. You convince me doesn't mean necessarily that I'll leave my gods behind, but I'll at least begin to put one foot in your world. That was so common. Many people today, I think they look around and they see that these were very visible idols and they, they think, you know, I'm so glad we don't have that problem today. I'm so glad that we've done away with polytheism and that we, that we get monotheism, the worship of only one God. I'm, I'm glad today that we don't have the people just trying to walk in two different worlds. How hypocritical that would be. Let's take a look at the first segment. And then I want to talk about whether or not there still is polytheism and syncretism in our world today. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? And that Hebrew word there for waver actually means stumble. They're stumbling around between two opinions. And Elijah is determined to call them out on it. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people are called out and they're feeling that being called out and they don't have a response. It says the people said nothing. Elijah goes on. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, you prophets of Baal, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Elijah knew that in many times in the Old Testament, going all the way back to the time of Abraham, when God wanted to affirm his presence, he would often do so by fire and sometimes by a pillar of cloud. He was confident that God would show his presence in this showdown with idolatry that that Elijah sets up. He was determined to put an end to the polytheism and get people back to the worship of the one true God. He was determined to put an end to the syncretism and, and, and the people saying, you know what, we can walk in this world for a while and then we'll walk in that world for a while. Notice what he says, and I want you to underline this. How long will you waver between two opinions? That's the key verse in this section. In other words, Elijah is determined to call idolatry exactly what it is, 
and to call the people out, no excuses, and to say, will you examine your hearts? Will you examine your lives? And by the way, this was not easy to do because this idolatry was literally embedded in everything in culture. It wasn't just sort of this deal where uh, once a week people for, for an hour or two went to worship their idols. Everything that they did in their idolatry was day to day. If you've ever lived in a place where paganism is practiced, you know that the, their religion is, is, it infiltrates everything that goes on. You cannot walk down a path without worrying that maybe someone has bewitched you. You cannot eat a meal without spilling a little bit of it out on the ground as an offering to your God. These are all the kinds of things that happen in paganism today and happen in paganism all the way back to the time of Elijah. It was literally everywhere in in their culture and society 24-7. So for Elijah to step up and fight this and to call out this showdown, this is really amazing and we have to get that. How long will you waver between two opinions? And that same question still hangs in the air today, doesn't it? How long will you waver between two opinions? Do we live in a polytheistic world? You bet we do. It might not be carved idols. But I want to run you through a list from a book called Counterfeit Gods. If you want a thought-provoking book on the topic of idolatry, read the book Counterfeit Gods. And in that book, the author makes uh, this list of modern-day idols, magic and ritual idols. In our world, we still believe in magic. It's hard to believe in a scientific age, but you can still go down the street and have your palm read. And certainly, if you go to many other areas of the world, we lived in Africa, as you know, for 14 years, magic and witchcraft are literally everywhere. I was uh, just yesterday speaking with a young lady, Nadine, from Johannesburg, South Africa, and she was talking about a Christian church blatantly practicing syncretism because they would have their pastor pray with what the South Africans call the sangoma or the witch doctor in a common service. So if a person's getting married or if a person's being buried or even in just a common worship service, you would have the witch doctor and the pastor side by side. And no one thought anything about it. Now, you might think, well, Johannesburg, that's in Africa. Of course, that's very third world. No, if you would go to Johannesburg, you would think you were in Chicago. This is a first world city. And and these kinds of things are all around us. One that's very prevalent, according to the author uh, of the book Counterfeit Gods, is what he calls sexual idols. Addictions such as pornography and fetishism that promise but will never deliver in the long term a sense of true intimacy and acceptance. He adds to that romantic idealism, the kind of idealism that says, look, if I just find the right person, how how often is this message portrayed in in, uh, chick flicks today? If I just find the right person, my life will be fulfilled. 
And by the way, this isn't limited to the gals in this audience. Guys think that often too. If I can just find the right wife. If I can just, for guys, it's not always, doesn't always end with wife, right? If I can just find the right girl and move, have her move in with me, right? Theological and religious idols. We have so many people today who have added to this simple revelation from God, have added their own books, their own writings, have taken the definitions of people that we have in here, even using people like Jesus Christ, and have so changed the description of who Jesus Christ is with their additional revelations and their additional writings and books that he is no longer the Jesus Christ of this book. And those proliferate in today's world, just the way Jesus said they would in Matthew 24. He said there are going to be many false prophets that come in the end times. The author of the book goes on to talk about political, economic, and philosophical idols. And here's the thing about all of these. Really, any one of these could be a a good thing, especially this one coming up, as long as you didn't make it the answer. Could, could something in a political realm, of course we have politics because it can be a good thing and it can present some short-term solutions to our problems, but people tend to take them and they tend to make ultimate things of them. He points out, for example, just a term like free market might bring up a lot of emotions in you. And you might be on the side that says, we need more refereeing in this free market. The free market isn't fair. It's not really free unless we have a big government watching over us. And you might be on the opposite side of it. You might say, let's get, let's get the government out of here and let the market just do its thing, whatever that means. We don't need all of this interference. And just hearing that term, free market, If it has become the answer, the ultimate thing. See, that's where we cross the line with many of these things. The author also points out that we can make an an idol out of our ethnic background or our national background and have ethnic and national pride to the point where it becomes divisive and gets between us. And how important is that one in a community like ours? And again, is it wrong to have ethnic pride? Not at all. It could be a very good thing. I happen to enjoy the fact that my ancestors were Scotsmen. Now, you will never see me wearing a kilt up here. I can promise you that. But I enjoy the fact that I have Scots ancestors. I love Celtic music. It's a wonderful thing. But when our ethnic pride, when our national pride, when our racial pride becomes divisive and bitter and oppressive, it does away with what God himself tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says, make every effort to keep the unity that God has placed. It has to be our job as a church, and you've heard me say this many times, to make sure that everyone, every last person is, is, is made to feel welcome. 
no matter what their nationality, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their race, because we are the family of God. And the book of Revelations makes it clear that on the last day, all nations are going to be gathered before the Lord, all nations who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And should not the church reflect that? Relational idols. When another person... Again, not necessarily a bad thing to have another person in your life that you depend on, that you love, that you feel attracted to. But when another person or family of people begin to take the place of God and you place demands on them that only God can fulfill, when you have expectations of this person that are God-like, that's too much. And that's the very definition of making an idol. You've carved an idol out of this person in your life via your expectations of them. And actually, the list from the author, Counterfeit Gods, goes on and on. And his point is this. We still live in a polytheistic world. And just because we don't necessarily see lots of carved idols and, and various temples does not mean that we have not made our own hearts temples to these many gods that we have. The last one that he mentions are what he calls the deep gods. And at Crosswalk, we have the same deep gods. We often call them the six Ps. And if you want to write these down, I think these are the ones that will sneak up on you. And I know I didn't leave a blank for you, so find a blank space. I want to especially make note of these six Ps because I think unless we clearly show them for what they are, we can so easily drift into worshiping these gods. The first P is power. How easy it is for us to seek power in our lives and to want to have that power over others and to be able to control things. The second one is performance. Most of our world in America today is measured by the level of performance. What just happened with the NBA championships? LeBron James come to mind? And why was LeBron James such a big story in this NBA Finals? Because people were saying he had not performed to his full potential. And until he wears a championship ring, we will never call him a true champion. What does that tell you about the culture all around you? You are measured by your performance. And it is so easy, easy for us to slip into that and make performance our God. Third is position. What position do I have in life? What title have I been given? How high have I risen on the corporate ladder? Do I really feel that when others look at me, they see someone that has worth because I have a title that really tells people what I'm worth? And, and here's where you can really judge whether or not you've fallen into this one. What happens when you lose that title? Do you all of a sudden feel pretty worthless? Because you can't hang that little plaque above your name on your office door anymore? Or you got moved to an office down the hall? 
and you were repositioned into what seems like a lower position? Possessions. You've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again today. This one we have to be careful for because so often in our society, our net worth equals our self-worth. And when you start to measure your self-worth by your net worth, you can be assured that this is becoming an idol for you. Prestige. Man, do we go to lengths to defend our reputation. In fact, I would say that this is one where many guys will let a lot of stuff go. But if they feel like their respect and their reputation is under attack, watch out. Nothing gets the hair on the back of our neck raising faster than to think that someone is dissing us and wants to take us down a few notches and bang on our reputation and take away our prestige. And the final one, becoming more and more popular in today's world, I think especially among younger people because they've looked at the older generation and they've said, we don't want to live that life. That life where you're busy 80 hours a week doing work all the time and work is all about that and life is all about that. We want to have time to play. That's the final P, play. And you begin to measure your life by the number of toys you have and the amount of time that you have to play with those toys. See, all those six Ps can become ultimate answers. And what I mean by ultimate answers is we begin, the thought begins to creep inside of our head that we'll be happy, truly happy when. I'll be truly happy when my net worth equals X. I'll be truly happy when I have the entire weekend to play with my toys. I'll be happy when others see that nameplate on my door. And when we can only hang our happiness on things like that, be careful because that means we become polytheists. And by the way, syncretism, let's go back to that one. Because each of those six Ps and all the other idols that I mentioned from the, from the book Counterfeit Gods, they also have their priesthood, don't they? They have their sangoma. And how many of us in our lives, maybe if it's not directly on a Sunday morning, how many of us have our, our pastor and God's word and Jesus sounding off in one ear? And the priests of our idols sounding off in the other. And we allow the conversation to continue. When we allow that conversation to continue, we are dangerously stepping closer to syncretism. And so we have to be very careful that we identify the priests of our idols and know who they are. And that when they speak, we can do what Elijah is doing here. We can set up the showdown and say, okay, let's see which God really is the true God. Let's read on and see what happens next with Elijah. So first of all, first before we read, let me give you that first fill-in. Idolatry, call it what it is. Call it what it is. 
Whether it's any one of these forms of idolatry, we have to identify it for what it is. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. I'm always amazed at the persistence of those who worship other gods. Amazing. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Amazing, isn't it? As was their custom. They kept on repeating and calling out to their false gods. And in today's world, we see so many people doing that. And Elijah does what he really needs to do to show these false gods for what they really are. He begins to ridicule them. Do you see that? Shout louder. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's thinking deeply about something and he's focused on that and not on you. Maybe he's busy. He's got other things to do than take care of you or perhaps he's traveling on vacation. Turned off his cell phone, not answering his email. You get a little note back from him that says he will return to his office on July 1st. And here we stand with Elijah too. Think back upon all those modern day idols. And with Elijah, we have to say what's ridiculous deserves ridicule. And it's not our purpose in taunting. It wasn't Elijah's purpose in taunting to take a a cheap shot. It was his purpose in taunting to show these gods for who they really were, to draw as clear a distinction as possible between Jehovah, the one true God, who really does act, who really does hear, who really is always present, never on vacation, never too busy for you, never beyond earshot. Elijah wants them to clearly see the difference. Baal might be pleased to see his followers mutilate themselves. Well, he might be pleased if he was really a god. But Elijah wants to make it clear that God would never be pleased with self-mutilation. And sometimes we need to do in our own world exactly what Elijah does here. And this is what I want you to write down. When it comes to false gods, we have to show them for what they really are. We have to ask the obvious. Is there really anything that should give us the sense of awe? Is there really anything that that should attract us? Is there really 
anything that should be foundational, something that we could build an entire life on other than God? I don't know about you, but when I think back through that list of idols about philosophies and and politics and physical attraction, all those things that we listed before that today's modern world works so hard at, it all seems pretty transitory to me. It all seems pretty shaky like sand versus a God who says, my love for you is unfailing. So I'm not going to be awed awed by anything more, attracted to anything more. I'm not going to build my life on a foundation other than God. And I pray that you would say the same thing. When Elijah does this, to me, it takes us all the way back to Joshua, where Joshua is calling the people out. And he says to them, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. And that's that. And there may be many other gods. There might be many other choices. But for us, we've made our decision. We've made our choice. And we all know that doesn't come, that didn't come to Joshua by his own power or authority. The Holy Spirit convinced him of that. And may the Holy Spirit convince you and me through his powerful word, that our God, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our God, the one whom we worship through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Remember what Jesus said? No man comes to the Father except through me. Remember what the apostles taught about Jesus? For there is no other name under heaven in this universe other than the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other name by which we must be saved. This message runs throughout the entire Bible. Show idols for who they are and show God for who he is because God is going to show himself for who he is. And we see that really clearly in the next section, really clearly. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. Took those four large jars of water, and a third time they poured it all over the wood and the offering. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. 
So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. What was it ultimately that drew men like Joshua to say, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my household, we'll serve the Lord? What, what was it that ultimately drew men like Elijah to stand up in a hugely dangerous and risky situation before Ahab, who at the snap of his fingers could have had him executed on the spot and call for this showdown? that involved Ahab inviting 450 prophets of Baal. What was it ultimately? If you go all the way back, and I did not include this in today's, but if you read 1 Kings 18, verse 1, it's it's pretty clear what happens. If you have your Bibles, you can read it for yourself. It, It simply says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. It's interesting that the Apostle John tells us that the word of the Lord came to us too. The word became flesh, John tells us, and lived among us. And then he goes and identifies that this word of the Lord is not a what, it's a who. The word of the Lord is Jesus Christ, our Savior, came down from heaven to redeem us and save us and forgive us, to die on the cross for us, to be raised from the dead for us, also that we could have as a gift, through no efforts of our own, as a pure and free gift, we could have eternal life and we could have the power right now to live godly lives. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, and the word of the Lord has come to us. Jesus Christ has come, and he lives for us, first of all. All the righteous things that he's done have been handed over to you and credited to your account and given to you. When God looks at you nowadays, he sees someone who is perfect and holy and righteous because the word of the Lord came. I've told you before that this series is mostly directed at the men to become true spiritual leaders. And I want to I attack something that I think causes many of us men to step back from spiritual leadership in our homes and in our communities and in our places of work. And it's this thought that I don't deserve to be called a spiritual leader. Why would God want me? God knows my history. God knows all the idolatry that I've practiced. God knows the times when my heart has wandered. God knows that certainly, if I look back on my life, I cannot say that I've loved the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. That's not me. And it would be fake for me, absolutely fake for me as a man who's lived a history like that to step up and say, I'm some sort of spiritual leader. And who knows me better than my wife? Who knows me better than my children? And you want me to stand up in front of them and say, I'm the spiritual leader, and they've seen all my faults, and they continue to see how bad I am? 
And can I just tell you that if you're thinking that way, let's go back to one of those Ps. You're making performance your idol. Men, God has not called you to be spiritual leaders because of your past performance. He's called you to be spiritual leaders because of Jesus' past performance on your behalf for you. Women, you also have to believe this. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult for you to allow your man to be the spiritual leader under your roof. It becomes very difficult because you do know his past sins. You, knew, you do know how he is today, and you do know that sometimes he shirks that responsibility, and you probably even wonder in your mind, does he even have a clue about spiritual leadership? And your words and your actions and your body language may be very well communicating to your man. Who do you think you are? You see, both of us have to come together and realize it's not about performance. God has called the men to be spiritual leaders, and we have to realize we're cleansed and we're prepared and we're equipped because of the performance of Jesus Christ. And we have to stand bold in that, in that grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and say, that's why I can be a spiritual leader. That's why Elijah was a spiritual leader. And let me point out some things in this text just real quickly. What does Elijah say to these people who were polytheistically and, 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 and uh, syncretistically worshiping other gods? He says, come here to me. Will you, will you circle those words in verse 30? Come here to me. Despite the fact that they're sinners, Elijah is God's spokesman and saying, we're family. And then he goes on and he builds an altar. And how does he build that altar? He builds it out of 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, to remind them that they're descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come. There it is again. What's he doing with that? He's saying, don't forget who you are. Men, women, don't forget who you are. You are the children of Israel. You are the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Even if you are sinners, even if you are idolaters, your true identity is that you are God's children. Come here and be God's children. And those, that same invitation, that gracious invitation comes out to us today. And then notice that Elijah sets it up so that only God could be the one at work here to show that everything that we get from God is purely a gift. The water runs down around the altar, and then he prays, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God. Answer me. And Elijah, the spiritual leader, gets down on, a knee, on his knees, and he simply trusts in God. And what happens? The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So here's our point. The Lord, the one true God, call him the way Elijah calls him. Men, when you're worried about your leadership, call him. 
for the ability to lead. When you're worried about your guilt and your shame, call him for forgiveness. The word of the Lord has come to you. Jesus Christ is your savior. And he will show who he is. Some of us are going to experience showdowns with idolatry. It might happen in your workplace. It might happen with a friend whom you know and love and who is following a blatant idol in his life. And you're going to call on him to recognize who the one true God is. I think the toughest of all is when the showdown with idolatry is right under our own roof. And I'll say this both to men and women. Your, your husband and your wife and your children, and I'll say it to the younger people, and your parents, because we are God-makers, can become prophets of Baal. For a short time, hopefully, but they can become prophets of Baal. And there is nothing harder than to look your spouse in, in, in the eye, to look your children in the eye, to look your parents in the eye and say, that's not the true God. Don't, don't put your fear there. Don't put your love there. Don't put your trust there. Know the one true God and worship him only. And know that his grace is going to have the most important and powerful impact in your life. Here's our key truth. There's only one true God, only one who has the love and the power to do what he says he will do, only one who can truly fill the God-shaped hole in your heart and in mine. And our response is to simply do this with God's help. Rid my life, my heart of idols, and be confident that the Lord wants me to know him. He says to me and to you, return to me as the only true God and his son Jesus Christ as my savior from sin. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing thing that you take idolaters like us and you say, as you said through Elijah to the people of Israel, return to me. Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, keep on calling us and inviting us away from our idols. Help us to rid our hearts and minds and lives of all the various different idols that are all around us and, and help us to confront them as Elijah confronted them. And then, Lord... Give us repentant hearts, hearts that are determined because of your grace and mercy in Jesus Christ to return to you and to have you as the only God in our lives and to worship you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, the one who has taken away all our sins and all our idolatry. In Jesus' name, amen. listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.